Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Welcome to another edition of Theology Model. I am your host, Devin Palu. My lovely bride is actually not going to be with us today. She is uh, taking care of the baby. We've had a had a crazy week. I uh, came down with a 
terrible stomach virus on Monday, and then we ended up having uh, some problems with our air conditioner, which flooded our downstairs, and I ended up uh, slipping and pulling a muscle, and it's been a crazy week for sure, but uh, we are glad to be here, and I uh, got a really awesome episode uh, today that uh, we've been looking forward to doing for a while, and uh, we'll get into that uh, in a minute, uh, but uh, a few things to get out of the way. Uh, if you have not liked our uh, Facebook page, that is uh, facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse. Facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse. I would invite you to do that. Uh, we've got a lot of, uh, in fact, all of our podcasts are on that show. Uh, we've done numerous shows. We've done shows on Mormonism. Uh, we had Dr. Cordwin come on and do a show on Islam. Uh, we've done several debates uh, with uh did a sola scriptura debate between a Protestant and a Catholic. Uh, we've done a few atheist debates, and uh, we have more more coming in the future. Um, but uh, like that page, and uh, be sure to share it. And uh, like I say, most of our, our episodes are on there, so um, a lot of good information. Not so much uh, the hosts that... <laughs> Uh, the, that I don't have necessarily a, a whole lot to add, but the guests uh, that we bring on, as you'll find out today, some of the guys we have on is just, uh, they're incredible. So we want you guys to uh, to be able to enjoy that. You know, it's this is a labor of love. We don't make a, a dime off of it. The people that come on, uh, they do it because they care about truth. They care uh, about theology. They care about things that matter the most. And so they they give willingly of their time. Uh, so we hope it's a it's a good resource for you. Uh, today's show we are going to be looking at the the works and the life of Saint Anselm. And uh, like I said, I've been really really excited to have our our guest on. Um, our, our guest actually on this episode is going to be uh, Doctor Greg Gregory Sadler, Doctor Gregory Sadler, and. He has well, he has a host of uh, amazing credentials uh, that certainly would qualify him on this topic. Uh, some of which uh, he's a Saint Anselm scholar, publishing and presenting on Anselm for over a decade, and he's done written in several numerous journals. Uh, one of them being Saint Anselm Journal, American Catholic Philosophical Quarterly carried out research at the Institute for St. Anselm Studies, uh, working on his second book uh, focused on St. Anselm's, Anselm's moral theory. Uh, he's done work outside of Anselm with uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas, a member of Aquinas's, uh, the Aquinas Translation Project, uh, translating some of the commentaries on the Psalms. Um, when I first met, uh, not met, uh, but I uh, got introduced to Dr. Sadler was through his uh, YouTube channel. Uh, over 250 uh, philosophy videos. That's his, his real area is philosophy. Uh, from intro to philosophy to ethics to philosophy core concepts. Uh, so he's currently working on a 100 video 
uh, Existentialum sequence, uh, 31 videos so far that are done, 4,800 subscribers. He's got several blogs, a Facebook page, and we'll bring him in and and uh, let him kind of tell us a little bit about that. Dr. Sadler, are you there? I am. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me, Deb. This is a nice virtual oh. space to uh, to work in, and, and after that introduction, I hope I can measure up to to uh, all the excitement that, that you brought to it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have no doubt about that. Did I did I leave anything out that you want to mention? Um, nothing about my my professional life. Um, I'd like to to say my my wife Andy is is listening right now, and. Uh, um, we also have two kids, Catherine and Matthew, and um, I don't know that either one of them are going to become philosophers. They don't seem particularly interested in that at this point in time, but, uh, you, you know, you never know. Oh, you don't. You never know. You know, I dropped out of school in the eighth grade, hated school, hated reading books, all that, and, uh, man, when the Lord saved me, it just he turned all that around. I, I love uh I love philosophy now, which I just sit in front of the, the computer and watch Dr. Sadler YouTube videos. So you never know how the Lord can work, right? That's true. Uh, and Anselm actually talks about that at, in one of his later works. He says that the ways of grace are, are so many that I'm not going to try to enumerate them. Um, and he, he sees, as a lot of theologians do, he sees uh Grace is something that we collaborate with and then are able to to provide to others, not from ourselves, of course, from from God. But yeah, you know, I I never thought I'd be a philosopher myself. Um, I wasn't particularly interested in school when I was when I was in high school or, or even in college. I have to admit, it was it was really in graduate school that I I buckled down and and uh, began studying in earnest. So it took a long time. How did how did it uh, how did it impact your views of uh, of Christianity? Were you kind of raised in a Christian home, or? Well, I was um, yes and no. I mean, I was raised Catholic, and we went to church, and um, you know, went to CCD, and I actually went to a Catholic high school. But I left the church when I was sixteen, in part because. Um, there were just so there was so little emphasis on actually providing intelligible answers to things, and um, you know I, I became disillusioned with it. Catechesis was at an, I think an all time low in the 1970s and early 80s, um, at least in the Midwest. And it wasn't until it, it actually Anselm played a, an important role in my coming back to the church. Um, it was through studying people like Anselm and Aquinas that I realized that. Um, there was this vast intellectual tradition out there that I, I wanted to to connect up with in order to understand somebody like Anselm. Uh, this is, you know, I'm not advising this as a, a way to get back into the faith by any means, but it worked for me. You know, in order to understand Anselm, I felt that I I needed to be part of the community that he was he was in. You know, I needed to, to share in the sort of things that he did, and then it, it had an effect on me. Um, oh. Yeah, I was I was reading an article this afternoon, um, 
and the, the author was giving basically ten reasons why uh, so many of the young adults leave the faith. It was something like 75% first year of college lose the faith. And most of them ascribe the same thing you said about the, you know, just not giving very intelligent answers uh, in the church. So I'm curious, just, you know, you're, you're a philosopher and a deep thinker. How important is it that we incorporate this stuff uh, in, a, in the Christian life? Well, I, I think it's absolutely important, um, and and it, that it's not just studied a little bit or to pass a test or something like that, but integrated into somebody's life. Um, you know, we've got this this great long you know tradition going all the way back to the, the church fathers, these these brilliant patristic authors of trying to make sense of the world and their lives in terms of this you know, radically new faith, but also drawing on all of the intellectual resources of, uh, that the culture made available to them and integrating those within a, a Christian worldview. And I think there's a hunger for that, and that hunger oftentimes isn't being met. Because when I see it being offered to, to younger people, um, you know, some of them don't, don't respond to it because they're, they're not – they're not ready for it or they're, they're hostile to it, but the ones that are actually receptive to it latch on to it very eagerly. And so I, I think it, it really is important. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm Protestant, so I'm not sure how they, how they do it with the, uh, in the Catholic church with the younger people, but I, man, I've seen so many times where the youth group is just uh, basically a holding tank with pizza, you know, and they, they yeah. simply don't know anything about the even the basics. I mean, the Trinity. I mean, just just the basics of the faith that they just they don't have a clue. And then when they get older, it just seems to just shatter them when when they go to college, and they're challenged with some very good objections. Um, so man, I just I see the role of of philosophy is just so crucial. Yeah, I'd agree with so, you. Do you do you do you notice that, uh, or do you see that a lot of Christians sometimes are skeptical of of philosophy, as though it's kind of a a bad thing? Yeah, I see that sometimes. Um, interestingly enough, even in Catholic circles, where um, over and over again the magisterium has has you know just clarified that that it's really central to. Uh, to a Christian community and Christian life. Um, I, I see a kind of, uh, it, it's not so much having to do with Catholicism so much as, as the, the contemporary culture where philosophy is understood as this uh, discourse where nobody ever gets anything done and that anybody can sort of make it up as they go along. So if you start insisting on any rigor in that and saying, well, no, you, you can't just say anything you like, um, you have to provide reasons, then you're kind of crimping everybody's style and you're no fun and, and they don't they don't want to hear that. Um, there are some Christians who um, generally it's going to be some, some verses of Paul that are cited where he's uh, talking about vain philosophy. There are some who, you know, use those, those verses as sort of proof text to say, well, you shouldn't do philosophy at all. Um, but I, I, I think I run into those less and less often and much more into people who um, you know, in this postmodern culture, just simply think philosophy can't do anything. 
and, and that it's not very fun, you know, which ends up being sort of the chief criteria for them. Right. And and it, you know, that 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 makes its way into uh into Catholic circles, into youth groups, into um, you know, various small uh uh gatherings and, and you know, projects and things like that. And and you even see it in academics, um in, in some Catholic schools, you know. Um the other thing is too, I think that a lot of people this this is sort of me getting on a on a soapbox right now about my profession. I think a lot of people have had poorly taught philosophy classes is their encounter with philosophy. And you know, it was an in, intro class or an ethics class or, or you know, a logic class and, and whoever was teaching it just didn't find a way to connect it up with, with their, their lives. And you know, I've taught non majors most of my career. And at the start I, I wasn't very much uh, into that. I wasn't I was actually kind of unhappy. I felt as if why can't I teach the major classes or, you know, graduate classes where people are really interested in this sort of thing. And then after a while I, I came to understand that it was it was my job to get them interested. It was my job to actually make the connections for them. And oh. uh so many times I've run into people who you know, on the bus or on a plane trip or in conversations, they'll they'll tell me, even, you know, members of my family, yeah, I took this philosophy class and it was uh it was interesting a bit, but it was also, you know, very boring in parts and I didn't understand how any of this this, you know, fit into my life. And then I say, Well, there went that one opportunity to reach that person. Um well, it's unfortunate. But yeah, that happens a lot. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm blessed where where I live at out here. Um able to go to uh Southern Evangelical Center and that was uh that was actually founded by by Dr. Norm Geisler. So I'm able to they actually offer, yeah. you know, full master's degrees in, in philosophy. So it's it's been really awesome to be able just to um just to be able to see, I guess, you know, from from a Christian worldview just the absolute necessity of it, and I mean they they have us reading david Hume. i mean it's it's not watered down we're reading you know the atheists the naturalists um hume i mean all all the hard stuff um but it's it's a very Thomistic school as well, so we get a lot of uh thomas aquinas and uh so it's it's been really good for that it's just it's when you look at it uh when I look at you know apologetics it's my my favorite field, your best philosophers, they are all, or your best apologists are always, you know, the guys that are, that are trained in philosophy. So it's, it's important. And, um, one other thing real quick before we dive in, I was, I was going to say, I just, you know, with, with Anselm, we've got a couple other shows I think coming up, you know, Richard mm-hmm. Dawkins wrote that, uh, the book, the God delusion. And I think it was a whole page and a half. He, um, he devoted to the work of Thomas Aquinas. So what I was going to ask you was, because a lot of people don't see the importance of studying a lot of these older, of the older thinkers. And yeah. um, what's your take on that? I mean, you know, why do we need to care about Anselm or Aquinas? And what do you think about some of the newer atheists, how they just um, basically just write these guys off in a page and a half? Well, so there's there's a couple different questions there. Let me start with the last one about the the new atheists and and 
writing these these people off. Um, there's nothing new about it. It, it, it. You know, if you look through the history of of thought going back several centuries, um, that sort of triumphalistic attitude that uh, really going all the way back to the Renaissance when we started, you know, labeling the Dark Ages the Dark Ages. This notion that um, religious believers are are uh, somehow backwards and really don't have much to contribute. So you're not going to devote much time to actually studying them or, or paying attention to their their ideas and thinking them through and perhaps maybe being affected by them. That's been going on for centuries. Um, Bertrand Russell, I think, was, was kind of a, a bad guy for that himself. Um, uh, people like Mencken did it in a very funny way, but in its full of, you know, very superficial engagements with the things. So I don't see the new atheists as doing something fundamentally new. It, it looks an awful lot just like, you know, um, 18th or 19th century positivism and, and other, you know, uh, movements in, in, in uh, thought. Um, to me, it doesn't look like it's, you know, radically different. Uh, with Thomas Aquinas, it's really interesting. There's, there's less interest in him in, in Catholic circles, I would say, today than, than, say, 40 years ago or let alone 80 years ago. There's much more interest in him in uh, conservative Protestant circles. And I first noticed this when I was invited to a dialogue between Catholic and Wesleyan philosophers, which took place at Olivet Nazarene uh, under the auspices of the Wesleyan Philosophical Society. And I was I was shocked to see how many of them were not just interested in Thomas, but were really reading Thomas. They were digging into his text. They were they were spending time with him and music and, and seeing him as as a, a good source. Um, and you see that among evangelicals. Um, you know, you see that in in a lot of different circles. Um, Thomas is is kind of a good guy because he provides us with. Um, a common vocabulary that, that, that we can use that, that can be um, quite powerful in, in analyzing certain issues. And now as, as to why we should study these guys, um, or, you know, we could say the same thing about why we should read the church fathers um, mm-hmm. or people like John, John Cassian or, you know, going, you know, somebody big like Augustine. Why, why should we even study Augustine? You know, what can a, a fourth century guy have to say to us? Well, that you know, in philosophy and theology, we're dealing with uh, the human condition, and we're dealing with perennial problems that, that don't go away. That technology doesn't, you know, solve or disappear, um, and and changing social situations isn't going to, to to banish either. So, if we really want to understand our own condition and, and how to improve it, and you know who we are, these these big questions, um, we, we can't do it without the resources that that classical philosophy and I'd say theology and there has to be a theological dimension or else you're you're really missing something big um, without the resources that these these bring to bear you're always going to be sort of you know uh, handicapped in, in even posing the questions let alone answering them I like that yeah and I think it's just like you say there's there's nothing new under the sun you know these the criticisms that come up have been answered hundreds of years ago, really, haven't they? Yeah, often enough, that's the case. That's great. Well, let's let's jump into uh, into this um, 
this topic of St. Anselm. Uh, maybe if you don't mind first, maybe we could look at the background about St. Anselm, kind of who he is, and then from there we can go to uh, Anselm's most key ideas. Sure. Um, so to give a very uh, attenuated sketch of who he was, he's he's a, uh, a guy from a noble family in at that time Burgundy, a town called Aosta, which is now part of Italy. Um, and, and Anselm is you could think of him as um, just at the cusp between what they traditionally called the Dark Ages and then the High Middle Ages. So he's, he's right smack dab in the middle of the, the medieval period. Um, he's, an, he's an 11th century guy. And he decided on a monastic vocation pretty early in his life, um, and his father was against it. So he, he actually ran away, and the local abbot returned him to his father and said, I don't want any trouble. Um, and then later on, um, after his mother died, he was very close with his mother. He, he flees. He, he uh, runs away from home. And by now, he's a young adult. And he travels around for a while, and he winds up in northern France in, in uh, a place called Beck, which is part of Normandy. And that, that was very, very important because the Normans uh, at that time were engaged in this process of conquering England. And that would have some very fateful um, effects not only for, for everybody else but also for Anselm. So he, he eventually decides to become a monk and he considers a couple different monasteries, settles on Beck because he figures that he'll be um, he's a smart guy but there's a smarter guy there, Lanfranc who becomes his mentor and he um, says well that'll be perfect for me. That that way I won't, I won't have to worry about being humble because I've got some problems with this. This guy will keep me humble. And then not soon after he gets there uh, Lanfranc leaves. He gets kicked upstairs and, and becomes an abbot and uh, eventually will become the Archbishop of Canterbury himself. And Anselm sort of follows in that same trajectory. He gets elected prior, which he isn't really that happy about because it takes him away from you know uh, some of his, his uh, studies that he wants to do. Um, it was a position of some, some responsibility in the monastery, sort of like a second in command. And then after the abbot dies, they elect an abbot. And, and he uh, doesn't want to do that either, but he does it very well. And then uh, he starts traveling around as abbot to uh, parts of England, parts of Norman England, where they have some, some monks here and monks there sort of on, on mission work. And uh, long story short, they, they make him the Archbishop of Canterbury against all of his protests. And they actually have to give him a bloody nose in the process by <laughs> putting the miter on his head and shoving oh my the, the, the crozier into his hand, putting him in the vestments. And, and, and they thought that by this time it's no longer William the Conqueror. It's his son, William Rufus, who was a pretty bad guy. And, and Rufus had left the, uh, the, the bishopric open for a while just so he could, he could you know, not have a bishop to bother him. And he thought Anselm would be very pliable. Uh, and Anselm turned out to be exactly the, the opposite of that. So then he ends up, um, among other things, you know, writing his, his uh, treatises and taking care of his monks. And, and, but he ends up in all these, these important conflicts with the, uh, the, uh, the state. And Anselm was an important figure in uh, church-state relations, in, in the, the, uh, not only in England, but also for the larger church. Um, now, to talk about him being a monk and being a, 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 a Christian thinker, the monks at that time were the, the best educated people. This is before the rise of the universities. So 
the schooling that's taking place is happening at cathedrals and it's happening at monasteries. And um, in the monasteries, they were preserving the, the heritage of antiquity as well as adding to it over and over again. So, you know, um, Anselm was deeply influenced by people like, like Augustine and Boethius, but, but also by all these, uh, these pagan authors who'd been handed down. They had a little bit of Plato, a little bit of Aristotle, uh, quite a bit of Cicero and quite a bit of Ovid and people like that. And they would, they would sort of integrate them within a Christian mindset. And then there's this entire Benedictine tradition that he belongs to. So, so Gregory the first, um, and of course, Saint Saint Benedict of Nursia, who who formulates the rule, and uh, then John Cassian as well, who wrote uh, the Institutes and the Conferences, which tell us all about the uh, the lifestyles and the thoughts of the Desert Fathers, the Egyptian monks and Syrian monks. Um, all of these people are influencing him, and Anselm is, like I said, getting thrust into this this uh, position that he didn't really want. Um, and he becomes a key player in these these reforms that are taking with taking place within the medieval Western Church that had been started a few popes before with Gregory the Seventh, and um, so Anselm inherits a whole set of problems like getting um, priests to actually do the sort of things that they're supposed to be doing <laughs> that councils had, had decreed, like um, actually being celibate and not ceding church lands to their kids. Um, simony was a major problem at the time, and Anselm was trying to put the, the hammer down on that. Um, and there, there were added complications, too, because one of the things that the Normans did to the Anglo-Saxon nobility um, to try to keep them from you know, causing any trouble was shove them into monasteries and, and uh, convents. Um, and so you've got all these people who really didn't want to be monks or nuns getting put into these positions basically to keep them off the political seat. And some had to, to deal with those sorts of things as well. Um, so that, that's probably enough about his background right now. Um, why don't we what's talk about... Maybe uh, yeah. What's that? Could you say that again? I, I'm, I'm not hearing uh, on, on my end. Can you hear me? Well, this is the, the fabled dead time that you're always supposed to avoid in, in radio, I suppose. Um, so I'll just uh, go on and, uh, and talk about um, where we would go if we want to know about, about Anselm. Um, and then if, if you can jump in, jump in, and I will uh, take it from there. So, so Anselm is a systematic thinker, but, but not a systematic thinker in the way that, say, Thomas Aquinas is, where he writes these, these giant summas. Um, and um, he approaches topics, but he approaches them in kind of a scattershot way. Um, he's hello. motivated mainly. Oh, hello. Are you there? Yeah, I apologize about that. I lost connection, but I'm, I'm, I apologize. No, that's that's not a problem. So, so I was talking about um, Anselm and how he's a bit different from Thomas. 
Thomas is this very systematic thinker and, you know, said, well, I'm going to treat every single issue I possibly can and, and in order and, uh, you know, write something like a summa. Anselm writes a whole bunch of treatises, and usually he writes mainly because people pester him, uh, not because he, he thinks that it's necessary at the time. Um, he was, you know, one of the brightest minds of his generation, so he had all of these these monks constantly saying, you know, you're doing this great teaching, write this stuff down for us. So he does that. Um, and he also does it to some degree motivated by his own desires or, or enjoyment. And that's where the proslogion actually comes in. Um, so okay. if we if we want to know about Anselm's thought, the treatises, which fortunately are all translated, um, except for the De Similitudinibus, are, are really important sources. Um, he also wrote... Uh, a whole series of letters and he started doing this when he was a monk and then it continued all the way through his, his later career as a bishop and he uh, he was one of the first people to do this in the Middle Ages. He arranged his collection of letters and they include letters not only from him to people but also letters to him from, from people like you know various popes or from the king or um, other monks and, and, and abbots um, he also has a whole series of prayers and meditations, and fortunately for us scholars, have managed to uh, to cut these down to a manageable amount. Because one of the problems in the Middle Ages, this this guy was so famous that if you wrote a prayer and you wanted somebody to like, you know, take a look at it, um, you might attribute it to Anselm just to get it get some some airplay, you might say. Wow. Uh, so okay. Yes, yeah, he wrote about nineteen. That, 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 those are the ones we're pretty sure about. There's other ones, and you know, I, I'm not uh, a textual scholar in that way, so I can't tell you about the stylistic differences. Then we also know about the guy from uh, one of his disciples, um, a fellow monk called Aadmer, a student of his, one of his, uh, also a friend. He wrote a life of Saint Anselm, and some of this is a little bit hagiographical and a little hard to believe, but most of it's pretty unvarnished. Uh, and then there's also uh, an untranslated work called the Ticta Anselmi, which is also supposed to be by Eadmer. And we have to piece all of these things together in order to get a good picture of certain aspects of Anselm's uh, thought, like his moral theory. This is what I'm trying to do in, in the book that I'm writing. As far as his thoughts about God, um, you know, we also have to do that to a certain extent, you know, bringing together the various treatises. But, but when it comes to the, the single argument, um, and particularly what they call the ontological argument. There we we can focus on just three words, the, the, the monologian, the proslogian, and the life of St. Anselm. Um, why don't we jump into talking about ontological arguments then? Sure, yeah, and just, just so you know, uh, Dr. Sadler, you have an hour and a half, so we have plenty of time, no need to, no need to rush through it. Um, uh, let me do this. Uh, we won't. Uh, we'll, we'll open the phone lines about seven o'clock. Um, okay. The show's podcasted, so most of our listeners actually listen to it on podcast. So feel free to feel free to take your time. You don't have to rush rush through it. Okay. Sounds good. So there's this this artifact, you might say. Um, running through the history of philosophy. And, and this shows up very often in philosophy textbooks and encyclopedias and courses that we call the ontological argument. 
and Anselm gets credited for originating the, the ontological argument. It's really kind of a misnomer to talk about the ontological argument when really there's a whole family of, of arguments that are sometimes quite dissimilar from each other that we can call ontological arguments. Um, and Anselm doesn't call it that, neither does Thomas Aquinas or Descartes. It's really Kant and, and people from him on who, who call it that. Um, so what do these all have in common? At, at bottom, you could say that what ontological arguments all share is the notion that you can prove the existence of God starting from a concept, starting from sometimes a definition, sometimes a set of propositions, depending on who you're, who you're, who's you're using. In Anselm's case, it's, uh, it's uh, a, a kind of interesting uh, hard to, to wrap your head around idea that then that then which nothing greater can be thought. Uh, in other ones, it'll be different things like a logically perfect being or you know a necessary being or things like that. Um, Anselm's argument is, is based on this this phrase "quo maius cogitari non potus," which means that then which nothing greater can be thought. And we'll come back to that in a moment, but I, I want to talk a little bit about how other ontological arguments are are quite different. Descartes um, uses an ontological argument in his meditations and also to a certain extent in his discourse. Um, and by the time that we get to Descartes, it's, it's not really anything like Anselm. It's more like, well, God's existence is a perfection and we're talking about an infinitely perfect being, so obviously existence must must belong to it, just like uh, mountains, you know, have to have valleys next to them. It's a logical necessity. And this is very different than what Anselm is doing. Uh, but some people have taken it to all be the same sort of thing. Uh, going back to, to Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas famously attacks Anselm's argument, but actually in the Summa he's attacking something that isn't Anselm's argument. It's, it's something used by other scholastics, uh, perhaps Bonaventure, some people have said, um, where they're saying something a bit different than what Anselm is saying. Uh, a little side note, too, later on in the commentary on the Psalms, and uh, uh, if I remember right, one other place, Thomas actually says, well, Anselm was actually right. It's just nobody's going to accept all of the, uh, the premises of his argument. Wow. God's existence, is, God's existence is per se nota, but only to the wise, only to those who actually understand the terms. Um, so usually Thomas is portrayed as this, you know, arch critic, but it's, it's a bit more nuanced with it. Um, by the time that we get to Kant, um, Kant definitely is a critic of the argument. Kant goes so far as to say all arguments for God's existence, except for, of course, his own, the moral argument, are really smuggling in the ontological argument based on it, which eh, it's a kind of hard claim to, to accept unless you buy into all of Kant's uh, uh, philosophy. Hegel uh, reformulates it as well and <clears throat> in, a, in a form that's uh, almost incomprehensible. Um, talks about it in, in a few places in his Science of Logic, which is a, a very difficult work to digest, and then talks about it in a more uh, easily read book that's Lectures on the Philosophy of Religion. And Hegel has a really interesting idea. He sees arguments for God's existence not as actually about proving that God exists, but as sort of... Um, you might think of them as, as uh, lattice works by which we actually 
rise to to a, a better conception of God. So we're not so much proving to an unbeliever that God exists, but rather helping ourselves to understand what exactly this God that we're talking about is. And he, he regards the ontological argument that way. And then in the 20th century, there's this, you know, you know if you looked at, at arguments for God's existence in the uh, 18th century, very little interest in, in ontological arguments, much more in design arguments or cosmological arguments. Um, Hume doesn't even bother addressing it uh, because not a lot of people are making it. In the 20th century, there's this just revival of interest in it, but a lot of it tends to be in terms that are very foreign to what Anselm's doing. Um, they want to use modal logic. Uh, they want to talk in terms of necessary being or perfect being. And, and Anselm himself is, is um, doing something a, a bit different and, and makes it quite clear that he's not talking about uh, the same thing that, that they are in, in some of his replies to Ganilo. Um A lot of times people want to contrast the ontological argument against other arguments for God's existence as if you have to pick or choose. You know, either you're like a proponent of design arguments and then you better stick with those or you're a proponent of the ontological argument and you better not mess around with design arguments. I, I'm not sure where that idea came up. Um, I mean, we can distinguish between them, but there, I don't see a need to uh, exclusively, you know, uh, become a champion of one or, or the other. Um, and Nansom doesn't either. This is part of what I wanted to talk about. What he's doing in the Proslogion is supposed to be a reworking of the Monologion. And in the Monologion, he actually makes uh, some arguments about God's existence that are that are not ontological arguments. They're they're other types of arguments. So we'll we'll get to those in in a little bit. Um, sure. The other thing that I, I'd really like to point out is, again, Anselm never talks about an ontological argument. When okay. he's writing the Proslogion, he talks about a single argument, the unum argumentum. And the question that we want to ask is, well, what's this supposed to be? Um, what is it supposed to prove? And if you look at what Anselm actually says about this in, in the preface, he says... Um, well, I'll just read, read from the Charlesworth translation because I've got that handy right here. He says, I began to wonder if it, perhaps it might be possible to find one single argument that for its proof required no other save itself and that by itself would suffice to prove. So here's the first thing he wants to prove. God really exists. So that's, you know, that, that's good work if you can do that. But then he goes on. That is the supreme good needing no other. So that's another major thing that the argument is supposed to prove um, he is uh, he it, and that it, it is he whom all things have need of for their being and well-being so that's that's another important aspect and then he says uh, and also to prove whatever we believe about the divine being so this giant miscellaneous junk drawer category of all the other stuff that's in say the creeds <laughs> you know that we, we believe about God so the, the right. one argument of the proslogion isn't trying to prove just that God exists. It's supposed to prove all these other things as well. Wow. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So now if we look at the structure of the proslogion, um, it begins with a preface where he tells us, 
hey, this is what I was doing, and, and here's why I wrote this thing down, and here's the story of this work. And then it begins with this very long and, and uh, interesting prayer where Anselm is asking God to, to illuminate his mind, to help him to uh, restore the image of God within him so he can actually understand God. Uh, and then we have chapters two through four, which is what most people look at. That's the, the you know what gets called the ontological argument. And then you might say, well, why didn't he stop there? Why, you know, why write all this other stuff? Well, Anselm thinks that all this other stuff is just as important, just as central to the argument. So, Prosologian five chapters five through twenty-three is all this other stuff about God that we want to prove using the same very term that than which nothing greater can be thought. And then it ends with um, three conjectures. And these are some very beautiful meditations on what it's going to be like if we make it to heaven. Um, what the joy of the, you know, the, the Christian life, not, not in the present life, but in the, the life to come will be like. And I don't see that, those three, as being part of the argument. But everything else, the, the first chapter, the prayer, chapters 2 through 4, and then chapters 5 through 23, all of those are part of the one single argument. Um, so to focus just on the ontological, uh, ontological argument is a little bit anachronistic. It, get, it kind of loses sight of what it is that Anselm is trying to, to direct us towards. Okay. That, that said, we're going to do that today. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting because I, you know, I I watch uh, like to watch a lot of uh, debates between atheists and theists, and uh, I notice the ontological argument doesn't doesn't get used a whole lot. But uh, I also noticed um, Wayland Craig has has been has been using it a few times. Um, so, but but you're saying a lot of the times the way it's used today is just not necessarily how maybe Anselm would have would have. Uh, would have said? Yeah, it's different from what Anselm is doing in two major ways. One is that they're using different concepts. So um, that then, which nothing greater can be thought, is not the same concept, Anselm points out, as the greatest being or the greatest possible being or a necessary being. You can unpack those from it, but it's not the same thing. The other thing is it seems like a, a lot of times in apologetics, um, you know, it's, it's a, a fight and it's solely about God's existence. Can you, can you get the other person to either agree that there isn't any, there isn't any way to prove that God exists or this argument isn't going to work or, um, you know, something on the negative side, or can you find some knockdown drag out argument that's going to absolutely, you know, uncontrovertibly convince everybody that God must exist. And Anselm isn't, Anselm isn't doing that. Um, that's just a tiny portion of what his argument is supposed to do. I, I would say the only time that you really see a lot of focus um, devoted to, to God's nature in terms of you know, God's existence tends to be when we're, we're considering the problem of evil. You know, and then we're trying to actually like get God off the hook for all the different bad things that are out there, or at least some of them. Um, yeah, let's let's talk about the story of Anselm's argument because that's kind of interesting too. 
oftentimes we think of yeah. these philosophical arguments as if, you know, some guy is just sitting around and he's, you know, writing down things and comes up with an argument. For Anselm, it was much more experiential. So he, he writes this book, The Monologia, and he's not entirely happy with it. And the Monologian is much larger than the Proslogian. And he wrote that one down because the monks wouldn't leave him alone until he wrote it down for them. So he, he produces a bunch of arguments, and he says, I wonder if I could, if I could reduce these to one single argument, if, if I could tie all these threads together with, with one main idea, or maybe I can't. Maybe they're, maybe they're all separate things and they have to be treated differently. And he thinks to himself, and this is one of his central intuitions, well, you know, God is simple. If I'm really getting God, even though you know, God is triune and all that sort of stuff, if I'm really getting God, I ought to be able to, to bring these things together into one integrated whole. And so he starts to try to do that. And he thinks about it and he thinks about it and he thinks about it and, and he says that it eludes him, you know, and, and he would have, it's sort of like, you know, when you see a mirage on the horizon and you start approaching it and then it goes away and you're like, oh, there, there, there goes that water. He tries over and over again and he keeps thinking that he's like right on the verge of it and he feels that he's on the verge of it. And this goes on for a while. And then, now remember, this guy is a monk. He's a busy guy. He's doing the Liturgy of the Hours. He's got his tasks to do. And this is occupying his thought an awful lot. So Anselm starts to say, you know, maybe I'm not supposed to be thinking about this. Maybe this is actually uh, a bad idea. Maybe this is a snare of the devil. Maybe this is a way for the devil to appeal to my pride and get me, you know, all, all out of whack and, and I'll be a bad monk because of it. So he says, okay, that's it. I'm not going to think about this anymore. That's it for this. Now, of course, when you try not to think about something, what happens? <laughs> you can't right. stop thinking of it, right? And so right. the idea, he's, he's pushing it away now. And he's saying, get away from me. I, I, I don't want to think about you. And it starts pushing itself more and more onto him. And then finally, um, he's at, he's at uh, morning prayer, uh, which actually took place very, uh, in the middle of the night, very early on. Um, he, uh, he has a breakthrough, and he sees it in sort of a hole. And, and we're not exactly sure what that means. Did he come up with a formula at the time? Did he see the entire argument? Um, we don't know from Anselm and we don't know from his biographer. What we do know is that he saw this as an, as an argument that could tie all these, these things together. And then he tells us that he wrote it down for one main reason. And it wasn't to try to put all the atheists to shame or, or something like that. He says, um, judging then that what had given me such joy to discover would afford pleasure if it were written down to anyone who might read it, I've written the following tract. And so it's, it's about joy. It's about uh, uh, the, the, you know, the pleasure that comes with intellectual activity and intellectual ac activity that orients one's, one's life in relation to God. So Anselm writes this down and it passes into history after that. Wow. That was amazing. What's, uh, yeah, he was... Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was, uh, I was just kind of contemplating. I like, you know, how he's 
just the, the joy of, of uh, thinking of these things, pondering these things. Um, really is. I mean, it's uh, that's that's really one of the pleasures, I guess. God has God has given us is to be able to to sit and think and and contemplate on these things. And it, you know, to me, what's sometimes I think we look at a lot of the, the people in the past and we think that we're so much more advanced and <laughs> so much smarter, but it's just incredible how how smart and how much these guys thought through this stuff. Yeah, and how well, what a good perspective they had, you know. Um, right. That's one of the things I really like about Ansel, is he challenges me to be a better person. Um, it would be very difficult to measure up, even, you know, after a whole life to, to um, not just what he did, but, but his character. But right. there's something attract there's something attractive about him that um makes it it, it, it less of a uh, bitter process and more of a sweet process to do. He's he's uh and you know, he had that sort of attractiveness in his own time. He drew people to him. Uh apparently he had a sort of charism for being able to um say the right thing to the right person at the right time to, to help them improve their lives if they were receptive. Wow. Well, let's let's go on and look at the, the monologian arguments. So Anselm says that the proslogian is supposed to be revisiting the monologian. So what were those those arguments? Well, he makes some important arguments about God there, and they're not the ontological argument. Um, <clears throat> he frames things not just in terms of existence, but in, in terms of goodness, which which for him go hand in hand. And so in the very first chapter, he's got a proof. Uh, which is based on what we could call the unity of goodness. So this is a very Neoplatonic kind of notion um, uh, based on participation. All good things must participate in something. So what's that one thing that they participate in? And you can you can bump the problem back a couple times if you want, but sooner or later you have to, at least within that framework, you have to say, all right, what do all these things have in common? What is it that makes them good? And Anselm says, well, that's what we call God. That's the supreme goodness. He does this also with what's supremely great. And what he means by great is not great in size, but he says uh, the greater something is, the better or worthier it is, like wisdom, for example, or justice. Those are great things, and you can be more wise or less wise, uh, more you know, just, less just. But there must be something in which these things participate in order to, to have these qualities. And, and eventually you have to trace that back to something else. Now, you could, of course, say, well, and he doesn't do this, but, but he could do this. He, well, God is just by participating in the idea of justice just like we do. If you were Plato, that's what you would do. But if you're a Christian Platonist, you have to see God as that very thing. And that's what he'll do a bit later on. Um, so those are two, you might you might say, in, in some sense, cosmological proofs. They're based on the notion of causality. He has another one like that in terms of existence, existing through something. What is what is the the origin of the existence of something? And you you can trace this back. And you know everybody's familiar, I think, with with some of the other formulations of these kinds of uh, arguments, where you know you can trace causes back, but sooner or later you have to have a first cause to get everything going. Right. Well, that's what yeah. Anselm is doing uh, in, in the Monologian. 
And then he has an argument based on the degrees of being. You know, there are various gradations, and this is a Neoplatonic concept too, but very common in, in antiquity in the Middle Ages, that there are, that being is not something and goodness is not something that is the same in everything. There's there's things that exist more and things that exist less. So for example, to have bare existence, uh what he calls nudimessa, just bare being, that's really almost being almost nothing. Now, once you are actually living you have a greater degree of being. If you're rational, you have a greater degree of being. God possesses oh, wow. being to the greatest extent. And this is a very common sort of proof that was used. You find Cicero doing this, Augustine doing doing this sort of thing. Uh, and Anselm awesome. does it too. Yeah, it's, it's not yeah, that an argument awesome. that can be made. Really neat, you know? Yeah, you like that. Huh? Yeah, I say that's, that's neat. We, just, we don't think in terms like that you know, any, anymore. It's just that is... That is really cool. Yeah. You know, Thomas Aquinas has, uh, his fourth way is based on the degrees of being. And that one doesn't wow. get talked about much because it's, it, you know, it's it's a bit foreign to our ordinary way of looking at things. Um, then he goes on and he discusses, you know, other things. He, he examines what it means to, to say that God creates everything out of nothing. You know, it's nothing like you know, a, a bag that he pulls things out of or like matters. No, no, it's not not that. And then he goes on and, and, and looks at what it means for to say that things exist in the divine mind before they are created uh, and after they, they pass away. Um, and then he talks about the divine attributes and he stresses the fact that, well, he stresses two things. One is that God is whatever God is. So if God is just, it doesn't mean that God has justice. God is justice, and everything else participates in that. God is reason. God is life itself, which means that we don't we don't actually know what these terms mean completely. We know what they mean for us, but we don't we don't fully understand as they are in God. And all of these attributes are one single integrated whole. It's not like God has parts, like, you know, here's the just part of God and here's the good part of God and here's the, the living part of God. They're all what God is. So right. at a certain level, goodness is justice, is life, is eternity. It, and it's very difficult to, to wrap your head around these sorts of things. But this is what's going on in the Monopogia. So when Anselm is going to talk about these sort of things again in the Proslogia, that one single argument is supposed to prove all of these things. It's supposed to connect all of these things together. So it looks like I might be cutting a little bit into uh, the Q&A time. Um, is, that, is that okay to talk about the yeah, you're, you're, you're argument? Yeah, I don't think we have any, you know, I don't think we have any callers, uh, lined up. So what I'll do is I'll just I'll I can open the phone lines at at uh at seven thirty is what is what I'll do if that's okay with you. And sure, uh, that's I'm gonna take good. take a few calls. And uh let me uh do you mind if we take a break for two or three minutes, let people uh maybe get up and go to the bathroom, get a drink and uh uh sure. play that a commercial or two and and I've uh, got a couple things we need to advertise. But uh, so what we'll do is we'll, we'll take a, a quick two, three-minute break, and then we will come back uh, with, the, with the rest of this 
arguments, and then there was a couple other things that I wanted to uh, to take a look at on your on your talk. And then at about 7:30, we'll we'll open the phone lines up, and uh, be looking forward to hearing from you guys. So we know there's you know a lot of big philosophical terms being used and stuff like that. So if you guys have any questions or need clarification, uh, you know, write that stuff down. And then uh, about 7.20, I'll go ahead and give the number out, and then uh, 7.30, we'll open the phone line. So stay with us, and uh, we will be back right after this commercial. Hi, this is Ted Wright, Executive Director of CrossExamine.org, and I want to invite you to come out this summer, August the 8th to the 10th, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to our Cross-Examined Instructors Academy. This year's going to be fantastic. We're going to have Jay Warner Wallace, Greg Kokel, our own Dr. Frank Turek, and many others. If you want to learn more about this, you can go to www.crossexamine.org and click on CIA to learn more about it and also to apply. back a few minor technical difficulties there but we are back and good to go dr sadler you still with us i am all right sorry about that i don't know why the computer is deciding to crash today but if you lose me just keep on talking and uh let's jump back into to where we were there with the with the ontological argument okay so we talked about the monology and all these other different arguments, you know, arguments based on causality or based on degrees of being, and and some among other things, you know, talking about God's uh, simplicity and his attributes. So the the one single argument that he he's talking about in the prosologium, the thing that he rejoiced so much on on finding, that's supposed to bring all of these threads together. And the question is, well, how does he do that? So what I think that the best thing to do is you look at, at the, what's called the ontological argument portions of the prosologian first, and then look at everything else that's going on and see how these things connect up together. So if we're looking at prosologian chapter two, where he first sets out the ontological argument, um, First, a word about vocabulary. He, he's got this phrase, that than which nothing greater can be thought, qual maius cogitari non potest. That's really central to the whole argument through the, the entire prosologian. It's going to keep coming up. It also shows up um, not only in the prosologian, but also in some of his other works. In the, in the On Truth, he says that, uh, he talks about a truth than which you know nothing greater can be, uh, or a rectitude that that with. A rectitude that cannot be conceived to be greater than that. In Cur Deus Homo, the, you know, why God became man, he also uses this, this language of uh, being able to conceive of something greater, not being able to at a certain point. And that's really integral to Anselm's conception of, of God. Now, notice what it requires us to do. Instead of just having some notion like logically perfect being or supreme being or something like that sitting out there on, on the table, it requires us to try to think. He says, go ahead, try to think of something greater. Go ahead and do it. 
engage yourself. If you can think of something greater, well, then let's bump it up yet another level. And, and you know, he's not the first person to do this. Augustine does something similar to this as well. The, and if you're thinking about God, one of the dangers in thinking about God is fixing on something that becomes a substitute for God, you know, which was traditionally known as idolatry. And, and this is one of the dangers for philosophers, I think, you know. Uh, this is one of the criticisms that often gets made, you know, the God of the philosophers is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, using Anselm's formula short-circuits that. Because, look, if, if you can think of something greater than this, well, then that greater thing, let's call that God. Augustine says something very similar in uh, on, on freedom of, uh, of the will. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry, on freedom of choice, uh, an earlier work. And Anselm is doing the same sort of thing. So now Anselm is going to switch up his vocabulary sometimes. He's not completely consistent. Um, you know, the translation is sometimes a faces, but he, he changes the Latin terminology a bit. But it all basically means the same thing. That, then, which nothing greater could be thought. And one of the interesting little bits of trivia on this is um, Anselm may have gotten this idea not from Christian sources, but actually from some uh, pagan authors um, I, I seem to remember reading something similar to this in Cicero's um, On the Nature of the Gods, just sort of thrown out there and then ignored. It was not that they ever really made any use of it. But Anselm was, you know, he was a monk. He was a reader. and He was willing to take whatever uh, resources he could find, whatever little snippets were useful, and then integrate them within a Christian perspective. So all that said, let's look at the actual argument then. And this is... Uh, this is really quite, quite, you know, uh, brilliant. And it, it sounds like a kind of sophistry when you first run through it. And, and I have to warn you, um, I, I wavered for years and years and years about this argument. I, would, I, would, uh, I went through something kind of similar to, to Anselm where I would say, this can't possibly be true. This can't possibly be, be a good argument. And then it would push itself on me. And then I would, I would say, oh, yeah, it's a good argument. And then I would have these nagging doubts. And that comes because of the fact that we're dealing with kind of murky concepts. So he says, God is that than which nothing greater can be thought or conceived. You know, if, if somebody's willing to concede that notion of God, and, you know, if you've got a, a conception of God that, that doesn't fit that, if, you, if your notion of God is that God is the kind of thing that you could think of something better than God, you're not talking about the Christian God, then, right? You're talking about something quite different. So any Christian, and really anybody who's, who's sort of questing, ought to be able to say, yeah, okay, I can go along with that. So now once you've heard that, once you've heard that phrase, that in which nothing greater can be thought, it exists in your mind. There's a concept of it in your mind. And the question that Anselm is going to pose, the real crux of this is, well, could this idea just be in our heads? Could God just be a figment of our imagination, kind of wishful thinking on our part? Or is there something peculiar about this notion, about this concept, that what it is that that concept is, is about has to exist in reality? And, you know, if you pause here for a moment, think about all sorts of other things. You know, unicorns, we can imagine them. They don't exist. Or they could. Right. Maybe somebody grafts a horn onto a, a horse and we say there's a unicorn. Anselm uses the example of a painter, and he says, you know, before the painter actually creates his painting, he's got the idea in his head of what he wants to produce. 
but it's it's not actually existing in reality. Then he paints it, and now it actually exists in, in reality. Um, so let's assume that, and this is this is a sort of what they call a reductio ad absurdum, a, a argument in which we're going to try to show that there'd be some sort of absurdity or contradiction. Let's assume that God, this this being, then, that then which nothing greater can be thought, only exists in our head. There's nothing like that out in the world. We're deluded. We've been reading this Anselm guy, and he put this this crazy notion in our head, and we're you know we're thinking that there's something out there like that, but there's nothing like that. So what would follow from that? Well, let's let's and this is where we have to be kind of active. Let's think about this. Can you think of something that would be greater than that which that than which nothing greater can exist, only existing in your head, only existing in the mind? Sure, you could think of that than which nothing greater can exist actually existing in reality. That would be greater than that. But now this means that we're saying two contradictory things about the same thing. We're saying that God is that than which nothing greater can be thought, and yet we can think of something greater. So that than which nothing greater can be thought is actually... Something about which, something in contrast to which, something greater can indeed be thought. This gets very tricky, doesn't it? Let me say it one more time because listeners might, might uh, pass over this. <laughs> Anselm says that than that than which nothing greater can be thought, if we follow this line of reasoning, is also that than which something greater can be thought. So we have a contradiction. So we have to reject something. And what we have to reject is that God only exists in the mind. So that then which nothing greater can be thought must exist in reality as well as in the, the mind or the understanding, the intellect. Therefore, God exists. God truly exists, Anson says. Um, now, oftentimes this is seen as, as if we're just start starting with a concept and somehow this concept in some weird way is unable to be unpacked, so it starts in our head and boom, it's out there in reality. Um, if Anselm were really saying that, he wouldn't be a very good Christian at all um, because then we would have somehow manufactured God through some, some linguistic sleight of hand. You know, um, He's not insisting on anything like that. He actually sees this formula as something like a way of opening a window to what is actually out there. Um, that's not the way a lot of people have looked at it, but that's what he's, he's uh, presenting it as. Now, if we look at the next two chapters, we see some other really fascinating things going on. In, in Proslogion 3, Anselm says, God cannot be thought not to exist. And at that point, you wow. say, wait a second. How, I thought we started out by saying that the fool said in his heart, you know, God does not exist. So wait a second. How can this possibly be? Well, he's got an argument for that. He says, and he's using the same phrase. He says, to be able to be thought not to exist is not as great as not being able to be thought not to, to exist. So let, let me sort of get rid of some of these these uh, double negatives. For a being to be such that it has to exist, that you can't possibly think of it not existing, 
is better, is greater, is, is, is something higher than to be possibly not existing. So if God really is that, then which nothing greater can be thought, he has got to necessarily exist. And if you're really thinking things through right, can't even be conceived of as not existing. And now notice three things about this. So this is going to show up in later parts of the Prologian, where, where Anselm is going to consider, could God have a beginning? Could God have parts? And he says, no, that wouldn't work. Then he wouldn't be, you know, that then which nothing greater can be thought, because if he's, you know, if he's got a beginning, you can think of something better, which is God actually existing from eternity. Um, he also says two other really interesting things. One is, he says, if some mind could think of something greater than God, to, to actually think of this, to, to have it in his mind, then the creature would be greater than the creator and would sit in judgment of God. So he's making wow. a point here, a theological point, about the, about our, our faculties and about, he doesn't use the word pride there, but this is exactly what in his other treatises he's going to describe as pride. So sometimes we have to watch out when we're doing philosophy not to assume things just by the very nature of, you know, the way we think the business is done, that are actually um, sort of trying to put God in the corner and, and insist that God be something that, that we want him to be rather than actually opening ourselves to what what God would be. The other thing is that, it, and this goes back to those degrees of being in the monologian, Anselm says that God exists so truly that he alone among all other things has existence most truly and therefore more, more greatly. God has being in a way that goes beyond our being and the being of our experiential world. God is, is at a higher level of being. He is being itself for Anselm. Um, in Proslogian 4, now he's got a little problem that he's got to address. Because remember, the fool did say in his heart, God doesn't exist. So if, if you know, we can't possibly think of God not existing, well, how does this, you know, this poor guy over here, how does he come up with that sort of stuff? And so Anselm makes a distinction, which is very important, between saying something and imagining it and actually understanding it. If the fool really understands what he's talking about, then he can't think of God as not existing, if he follows out the line of reasoning. But there's nothing to say that the fool has to do that. As a matter of fact, you can, you know, I mean, you know this from apologetics, you can make arguments until you're blue in the face to people, but if they're not actually going to hear your arguments and consider them fairly, you're not going to make any headway, right? Right. So that's what Anselm is, is talking about here. If so, and this, in some ways, goes back to that question about the, uh, the new atheists. A lot of the time, they're, they're not actually um, you know, being open enough to, to consider what it is that a, a Christian philosopher or theologian is actually saying, um, right. to be able to consider it on their, on their merits. So let's move on then very quickly. What else does the proslogian tell us about God? Immediately after this ontological argument business, he uses that than which nothing greater can be thought to argue that God is everything else. God is, you know, supreme goodness, supreme justice, supreme uh, light, supreme uh, life, supremely simple, eternity itself. Um, and he works through some very interesting paradoxes in the heart of the Proslogian 
<clears throat> one of which has to do with can you reconcile justice and mercy within God? And I, I'm not going to go too much into that here. I've actually got an article that I wrote a long time ago about that. But he, he ends up um, being able to reconcile these in part by talk, is talking in these same terms of that than which nothing greater can be thought. You have, you, if you follow it out, if you see it not only as a verbal formula, but as sort of a call to think things through, then um, you can unpack all these other things out of it. Uh, it, by the time he gets to Proslogion 14 through 17, he actually says God is greater than can be thought. So that than which nothing greater can be thought is actually, to some degree, above our thought. And this is the dwelling in inaccessible light. And Anselm, you know, figures out that uh, the problem isn't that there's any darkness in, in God or obscurity in God. It's that we're having trouble because of our limited human capacities in, in understanding these things. Um, by the time that he gets to the later parts of the, the Proslogion, God is being itself, truth itself. He even derives um, a short discussion of the Trinity from this, this formula as well. And, wow. Yeah, so all of that is there in the Proslogion. All of that is part of the one single argument. Because remember, it was supposed to prove not only that God exists and that God is the supreme good, but all the other things that we believe about God. Theoretically, all of the articles of, say, the Nicene Creed ought to be able to be found, at least implicitly, in Anselm's Proslogion. Wow. So that's that's an argument that, you know, um, that's, yeah. a lot of mileage, you could say. Yeah, it's... it's... It's just incredible people can even think of these things. You know, it's just, it's, it's amazing. So you, you say true. that we're, uh, it, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say that's true. I mean, we're really fortunate. Just imagine being a monk, you know, in Anselm's monastery. And you hear this guy talk all the time because he, he apparently... Um, not only would would talk during during his classes, once he was abbot, uh, Anselm didn't eat much, and they were always trying to get him to eat. Um, one of the things that monasteries typically do would be to have somebody um, reading while while the the meals were going out, something edifying, you know. Well, Anselm okay. modified that practice and would often talk during during the meal about some sort of topic. It could be, you know, unpacking something from the gospel. It could be some some theological topic that, that was kind of thorny. It might be some current issue. Um, but something, you know, again, edifying, something that was supposed to build build the monks up. And, and, and these guys had a lot of problems, you know. The monastic life is not an easy one, as we know from Anselm's letters and, and many other accounts. Um, so, you know, he would talk about all this sort of stuff. And, and imagine, you know, the first time that you hear something, it, especially if it's complicated or it's about a mysterious topic, it, it's a little hard to wrap your head around it. So you would want this guy to write this stuff down. And right. that's what they did. They, they pestered him to write these things down. And he produced not just one work, but work after work after work over the course of his life. Um, wow. So just imagine what it, what it would be like to be hanging out with this guy, you know, able to access him and, and pose questions to him. Yeah, you you definitely want him on speed dial for sure. 
But uh, let's do yeah. this. Let's go ahead and, and we actually have a, a caller. Um, is it okay if we take him, or did you want to? Abs- oh, absolutely. That sounds great. Okay, let me give the number out here for those uh, who are wanting to to call in. Like I say, I know there's there's a lot of um, a lot of a lot of lingo and words that are used you may not be familiar with, and just you know, some clarification may help you out. So, number is seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. All right, caller, are you there? Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Who is this, and uh, where are you from? Uh, my name is uh, Brian Chilton, and I'm actually uh, here in uh, North Carolina. Oh, well, it's nice to have nice to have you on the show, Brian. Did you have a question for Doctor Sadler? Yeah, I've uh, really enjoyed the the show, and uh, I just just had a question. I, I read an um, article. Uh, not long ago, it's a, really a depressing article about uh, the uh, director of uh, CARM, C-A-R-M, his daughter, uh, Rachel Slick, uh, becoming an atheist. And um, mm-hmm. I, it really, to be honest with you, the, <laughs> I really think her reasons for becoming an atheist were really more emotional than uh, necessarily intellectual. But she said in the article that uh, that she had a problem uh, when you talk about uh, the goodness of God and uh, morality, uh, about the the changes that happen, uh, like say there's things in the Old Testament that's changed uh, in the New Testament, for instance, like uh, the foods that are that are no, that are no longer uh, considered unclean, and she had a problem with uh, the, the the dealings of morality with it. How would you answer uh, her objections? So she's she's concerned with there being inconsistencies or or I mean go ahead that, that's the way I read the article almost as if she as if she the way she interpreted there being uh, uh, d- differences in what she she perceived as uh, like morality in the God. Old Testament yeah like God was God is somehow changing. That's one of the things where I do think that Thomas Aquinas um, discusses it very well when he's talking about the uh, the, the old law, the uh, um, what we're getting from from the the Old Testament, uh, the pre-Christian scriptures. He distinguishes between the moral law, which you know you find in the Ten Commandments, for example, and then the ceremonial law, which the the kosher laws would would you know be a part of. As well as many other things, you know, how, how do you deal with leprosy or things like that? The things you find in, in uh, discussed sometimes in Exodus, but also in, in you know Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, and then he talks about the uh, judicial precepts. And Thomas is, is distinguishing, and he's not the only person doing this. Augustine is doing things like this too. <clears throat> he's distinguishing between the the moral law, which has to do with how we ought to live, and the ceremonial law. Um, it's it's in certain ways arbitrary what what animals we eat <clears throat> and, and what foods and how we prepare them. Um, it, it's not. Uh, I mean, it has to do with ritual cleanliness or things like that. But it has to. It doesn't have to do with whether we're a morally good person or not. And so it sounds like she's mixing those those things up and um, really just hasn't hasn't done her her due diligence 
and, and seeing whether anybody's addressed that that problem. I think you're you're probably right that in many cases when somebody uh, departs from from the faith, they do so out of emotional reasons that then get gussied up as as um, rational arguments. Uh, and Anselm himself was was very cognizant of that. You know, he he was uh, very concerned about scandal. And, and the scandals that were produced by different people's actions. You know, he'd have to actually say, uh, don't let, you know, when he's writing a bishop, he actually, you know, wrote one letter where he says, don't let this guy, uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> be, you know, be uh, uh, up in front of the pulpit because he's going into town and he's getting drunk all the time. Uh, and this isn't the kind of guy that we want to have up there. Um, you know, because he was conscious. And, and he actually had a great talk with another abbot um, it was a very famous one. It made it into the, the life of St. Anselm. This abbot said to him, um, you know, I, I don't know what to make of our young monks. We we beat the hell out of them, and they just don't seem to get any better. And Anselm's jaw dropped, and he said, wait a second, you, you beat them? And the guy says, yeah, of course. You know, it's uh, this is, you know, the Middle Ages. So, of course, it's a fairly common practice. And Anselm said, wow, what is wrong with you? Don't you realize what's happening when you when you beat them? You're the you know you're the abbot. You're supposed to be an example to them. And what are you showing them? Are you showing them love? No, you're just showing them arbitrary punishment. And they're going to be like trees that are all bent out of shape when they grow, and they're gonna they're not going to know what love is. Um, and you know you could imagine. Of course, in, in this case, the guy was like, "Oh my God, I made such a huge mistake," <laughs> you know. I, I, uh, what am I going to do for you know to possibly be forgiven? And Anselm had some ideas about that. Um, but in a lot of cases, that doesn't happen, and and people you know are, are hurt and take things to heart, and you know they become they fester. You know, Augustine talks about the the danger in anger is that it easily turns into hatred if it's allowed to just you know sit there. And that happens with people, and then they find themselves, you know, um, leaving and, and uh, being uh, you know, totally unreceptive to anybody talking about the, the, what the faith has to offer. So that's a very long-winded answer, uh, unfortunately. That's very good, it very, and, and it definitely answers the question. Well, good. All right, well, I appreciate you calling, my friends, and uh, feel free to call back any time. Thanks so much. All right, man. God bless. All right, Dr. Sadler, we actually have another call. We'll go ahead and go to. Okay. Caller, are you there? Hello. Yes. Hello. Who is this and where are you from? Hi there. Um, this is uh, Anthony Haynes. I'm calling from the uh, UK. Hi. Hi. Oh, nice, nice to have you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fairly late at night here. Um, I just want to say thanks very much for the show, and uh, I want to thank uh, Dr. Sadler for the YouTube videos he does. It's very, very helpful. Um, my my thanks. question is um, about the argument from desire, which seems quite similar to the ontological argument. So... How do you see them as similar? Well, I, I do find the argument from desire quite persuasive, but the, the, the criticism I've got about it is that it begs the question. 
um, and that it, you know it presupposes God's existence. Um, I, I was just wondering if, if you could tell me what your thoughts were on that, and whether the argument yeah. from desire is, is actually useful um, and is actually you know logically valid and uh, on the same par as the the other natural theological arguments. Okay, so let's, just for the, the other listeners, let's recap a little bit about what the, the argument from desire is. And okay. um, it, you know, it takes different forms, and generally it works like, like this. We have, uh, you know, we experience all sorts of desires, and some of them can be satisfied, but we, we find that our desires exceed the, the realm of satisfaction that we encounter, and so there must be something yet greater that we, we desire. And, you know, we yeah. can run through it. And really, if you look at, you know, what, what Thomas Aquinas is doing in uh, the Summa Theologica, the Treatise on Happiness, he's doing something very similar to this. He's saying, what would actually uh, make us happy? What would actually satisfy us? Uh, so it's not just people like Augustine or then, you know, fast forward to the 20th century C.S. Lewis doing this. Thomas Aquinas is doing something similar, too. Yeah. And now Thomas doesn't use it as an argument to say, aha, therefore God must exist. He's, he's you know, using other arguments for that and then saying, well, now that we've got God in the picture, um, nothing else now we understand is going to satisfy all of our desires, only this thing will. Um, so it's not really that much like the ontological argument in, in that way. Um, but here's how, in a certain sense, it would be similar to, to what Anselm is, is saying. And with this, you would want to look at not so much the proslogian itself, but his reply to this guy, Gonillo, who was a you know, major critic of the, the argument early on, a fellow monk uh, from another monastery, um, who said, well, this argument's no, no good. And here's you know a reason why, and another reason, another reason, another reason. Anselm Anselm believes that God is out there, and it's precisely because God does exist that we can actually have any sort of thing like the ontological argument. Um, so there's there's a difference between sort of the order of discovery and the order of, of actuality, the order of being. And you can say a similar thing with desire. Um, we We often do encounter God by going through a life where we try this, we try that, we try this. None of it actually pays off for us. And then, you know, we we meet God and we find that our desires are satisfied in a very different way, much more cohesive way, something more lasting uh, and, and with greater promise. Um, we're able to do that because God does exist. I'm not sure that you can actually argue uh, to, a, to an unbeliever that God must exist because we have these infinite desires, because it could be that um, we're destined to be unhappy. That is a live possibility. It just doesn't happen to be the case, you know. Um, mm. Somebody like, um, for example, you can look at, at Nietzsche, or you can look at um, Freud and, and one of his uh, great uh, disciples, Jacques Lacan, as saying something which is almost the, the mirror image of Augustine. Augustine says our hearts are, are restless until they rest in God, right? And that, yeah. that's sort of like the argument from desire. 
Um, Nietzsche and Freud and Lacan are saying, yeah, well, our, our hearts are going to be restless then because there isn't anything for them to rest in. Desire is, is greater than, than the reality that we can, uh, we can uh, encounter with it. So as a philosophical argument uh, or as you know, a piece of apologetics, I don't think the argument from desire is all that effective. Um, as a mode okay. of as a mode of understanding our our actual experience as beings you know in the world, I think it's great. I think that we I think that we actually have to pass through a point where we say, yeah, all this other stuff isn't doing it for us. Mm. So does that help? Yeah, that's uh, uh, while I'm here, just quickly with the ontological argument. Do you mm-hmm. think it's worth talking to lay people? Uh, about the ontological argument as a proof for the existence of God, or do you think it's just too abstract, too hard to put into words? That's that's my final question. Thank you. Well, that's a good question. I I would say that um, if you're actively doing apologetics, um, different people are going to find different different arguments or different you know families of arguments easier to wrap their head around. So if you, you're right, the ontological argument, it's not like you can point out in the world and say, ah, did you see some design there? You know, where do you think that came from? Um, it's more about concepts and more about uh, thinking things through. But if you've got somebody who who that's that's an option for, well, then you can use yeah. it. Otherwise, uh, perhaps, you know, other, other arguments are, are better suited to other people. I, I know Thanks for myself... You're welcome. I, I know for myself, the ontological played an important role in my my coming back to the, the faith. Uh, but I think that's probably more rare <laughs> than common. <laughs> right. Thank you. If you have uh, if you have any other questions, uh, my friend, you can feel free to ask. And there's there's really no one behind you. I don't know if you have any other questions you wanted to ask Dr. Sadler? Or? It, but, well, uh, I, I have, but it's, I'm worried about my phone bill. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, that's calling from that's the grocery. Uh, right, I, I, suppose, I suppose I'll ask another one then, um, and then I'll have to hang up and listen to it streaming, if that's okay. Sure. No problem. Uh, and from your, from your classes and your lectures and your YouTube recordings, um, I'm doing a series of talks for my local parish, um, on on kind of basic Christian apologetics is in the Catholic tradition, um, and the order of which I'm doing, I was wondering if, if you could comment on that and perhaps offer your advice on how to structure the talks, how to talk um, to lay people in a way they can understand. Um, okay, so I, I'm I'm doing four talks, and the first one is apologetics in Christian discipleship. The second is the historical Jesus. The third is science and evidence. And the fourth is evil. Do you think they're, they're good, um, good topics? And how, how, what, what advice would you give in, in, uh, in, in presenting this stuff to lay people? Um, thank you. Okay. Yeah, I think that's actually a great, great uh, sequence. Um, and I think it's good to start out with um, some of the basic principles stuff at, at the beginning, which it sounds like you're doing. Um, the historical Jesus material uh, does deserve to be treated differently because there's a whole um, 
discourse out there, you know, all these these quests for the historical Jesus things, and they're often um, <clears throat> they're they're often quite uh, unsophisticated philosophically. You know, they may just assume naturalism, um, and and they don't give a, a you know some some sort of reason why they they do that. Um, the science, I think, if I heard right, the third part was a science versus religion or, or something along those yeah, lines. Not, yeah, science. Uh, yeah. Problem of evil is yeah, another one. That's good to do. Yeah, and, and the problem of evil, that's, I mean, you can do a whole semester on that. <laughs> there's, oh, yeah. there's so much that I've you can too. talk about. <laughs> yeah, I've done so two. It, so yeah, it sounds like a good plan. I would I would say, um, so the question was how to how to talk to, to you know, ordinary um, non-academic people about this sort of thing. So I'm actually going to borrow a, a page from Anselm. One of the ways that he was able to teach very well was by um, using analogies as much as possible. You know, you can't, you can never have too many examples. Um, and you know, understanding, of course, that the examples may um, backfire sometimes. They may not, uh, they may not hold uh, in every single. Uh, aspect that, that you want them to do. But if you give people examples, that helps them wrap their head around these sorts of things. Um, I would say another thing, it's good to be able to bring up um, Christian thinkers who have grappled with these topics, and you don't have to provide people with everything in, in one session. Oftentimes, it's it's enough to give them a few nuggets from it and then say, well, this guy's got this book over here or here's a website that, that deals with this sort of thing if you want to follow this up. Because, you know, frankly, um, our intellectual life is driven a lot in part by not only our practical, you know, commitments and concerns, but, but uh, by our, our desires and by our will. And somebody may be receptive one day and uh, wasn't receptive the week before. Um, and they'll follow up on it. And then the other, I say the other thing to remember, and I've had to learn this through a lot of painful experience, is, um, you know, um, I'm still not really that that great at this. <clears throat> so if if we're if we're doing Christian apologetics, um, we we can't you're kind of fading. you're kind of you're kind of fading in and out, Doctor Sadler. Oh, okay. If, if is this better? Yeah, that's that's better. Okay, so if we're doing Christian apologetics, we we um, you know we're on the spot for being the representatives, and we can't talk down to people, or allow um, uh, setbacks or people baiting us or all sorts of things to get our goat, um, because then that just turns them off immediately. And and I'm somebody who's had to struggle quite a bit with with uh, that sort of thing. Um, you know, you you want somebody to say, why can't you just get this? Well, you know, um, that's not going to be very persuasive <laughs> to, to somebody. So I, this this is probably not a problem for for the the caller, um, but I, I know it can be for for quite a few other people. So I thought I'd throw it in there. Sure. Good stuff. All right, uh, we actually have another caller. Let me give the the phone number out real quick: seven six zero five four two. Three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. We're taking your calls for Doctor Sadler. Hello, caller. Are you there? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, Doug Benscoder. Hey, Doug, how you doing, my friend? Uh, doing well, and yourself? Doing, doing good. Yeah, we actually had uh, Doug as a as a guest on a few weeks back to do a a big thing on Thomas Aquinas and his arguments for the existence of God. So, did you have a comment or question for Doctor? Yeah. Yeah, just a, just a quick question from Dr. Sadler, and I, I apologize for missing the uh, first uh, part of the show. I'm not not sure how much uh, you guys delved into uh, the ontological argument. I was I was kind of wondering what um, how Dr. Sadler felt about some of the contemporary ontological arguments, such as those of uh, Alvin Plantinga and uh, even more recently of uh, Robert Madel, for example. Well. Um, I don't I don't pay that much attention to them. I have to admit, uh, in part because I'm I'm more interested in in the history of philosophy, and I'm very happy with the the uh, versions that I I find out there. Anselm's in particular, Descartes is even kind of interesting, um, mm-hmm. and 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 Hegel's, although it's a mess, is is interesting to delve into. I don't um, you know a lot of the 20th century stuff. Um, I mean, it, it all depends on what we want to call an ontological argument. Um, certainly what they're doing is very dissimilar to what Anselm is doing. And the Anselm addresses some of these um, some of these issues in his response to Gunnilla, you know, where he insists that, look, um, that then which nothing greater can be thought is not the same thing. It is not the same locution. It's not the same idea as the supreme being, and you're not going to get the same mileage out of them. Or, you know, if you were here today, Anselm would probably say that about logically perfect being or, you know, um, necessary being or a lot of the other uh, things that people use. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not a very great response to say, well, I'm, I, I, I don't really pay an awful lot of attention to the 20th century anymore. <laughs> Haven't gone through it. I'll tell you some 20th century stuff that I'm really interested in. It's not in the Anglo-American uh, philosophical field, but rather in the French philosophical field. There was an entire uh, movement in philosophy called reflexive philosophy, which uh, Maurice Blondel was a major player in, and people like Jacques Pollard, Henri de Lubeck. Um, it was very closely tied with existentialism in certain respects. And these guys were very interested in the the, uh, the ontological argument as a means of sort of they're doing something very much like what Hegel was saying we ought to do. We use it not to prove God's existence, but rather to um, make our mind work do its the sort of work that God intended it to do, so that we can better understand the nature of God mm-hmm. um, and our and our relation as as thinking subjects to, to God. And this is getting very abstract. Which, which is unfortunate because reflexive philosophy is all about the concrete. Um, and I, I, I do pay some attention to, to those thinkers. Um, so, yeah, a bit of a roundabout way of saying uh, I like planting it. I just, you know, I, I'm not really into what he's doing. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay, yeah. Well, that, that pretty much answers the question then. Um, yeah. I appreciate uh, you taking my call. Sure. Not a, not a problem at all, Doug. We'll look forward to talking to you again.
Sadler was um, uh, you think on what is Anselm's basic approach, and oh, this yeah. is one of the things that comes up a lot. Um, is I think non-believer. I think there's two problems. One, non-believers have this idea that faith is just this blind uh, leap in the dark. That yes. uh, basically faith is kind of the the uh, the glue that fills in the ignorance, so to speak. But the problem is, a lot of times when I talk to Christians, they have the same idea. And uh, if it's somehow a reasonable or rational faith that this somehow, almost like it somehow takes away from faith. If you can, if you can do something like Anselm's arguments or Aquinas, that somehow this takes away from faith or something. Maybe, maybe we could talk a little bit about this. Sure, and, and and the word for that sort of thing is is fideism. Um, this this uh, and it, it's sort of a uh, distortion of of what what faith means. Um, you know, August. To, to, we'll start with Augustine. Augustine talks about um, the the old lady on the street who doesn't know any theology and um, never reads the scriptures, but actually embodies faith, hope, and, and, and love, and says that she knows more about this sort of stuff than a lot of theologians do. Um, <clears throat> now, those sort of old ladies are pretty rare. They're not as common as, as people would like to make them out to be. And if we move to, you know, something that's going to be, like, strictly biblical, you know, don't want to mix any, any philosophy in with that sort of thing. You see people trying to do that sort of thing all the time, even in the Middle Ages. Um, St. Peter Damien God, you know, God bless him. He was a hardcore fideist when it came to this sort of stuff. He um, thought that even grammar was a device of the devil. Um, and, uh, yeah, you're not going to get too far with that sort of thing. Jerome uh, had some some uh, elements of that within his, his thinking as well in respect to the, the pagan authors. Um, you know, they just get rid of them altogether if you can. Um there is that, that that aspect. So, yeah, Anselm is a sort of shining example of a different conception of the relationship between faith and, and reason. And, and this is the this is the mainstream view within Christian uh, philosophy and theology. The idea is that on the one hand, God gave us minds. We're rational creatures, and we're called to use and cultivate and and uh, purify reason as much as possible so that not only can we get by and not kill other people and, you know, not fall down wells and, you know, ruin ourselves financially, but also so we can get to know God because God is rationality itself. You know, so we're never fully rational. We're never, you know, whether we're a believer or an unbeliever, we're not reason itself, uh, nor is the march of history or anything like that. Only God is. And, God created the world according to, you know, some sort of rational plan. It's very, you know, murky to us uh, 99% of the time, uh, some of us even 100% of the time. And uh, but we're called upon to try to, to understand that. So Anselm 
you know, his, his basic approach, and this is the title that he originally chose for the Prosologian, is faith-seeking understanding. If you have faith, you're called upon, according to Anselm and many others like him, not just to, uh, you know, if we want to mix a lot of metaphors here, not just to bury it away like the one talent, but actually to, to make it produce more. And you do that by using the gifts that, that we were endowed with as the kind of creatures that we are, rational creatures, to try to integrate reason and faith. Now, you know, if you say this sort of stuff to, to an uh, unbeliever, especially somebody who's, you know, very committedly opposed, um, you're probably not going to make an awful lot of headway because they're, they're convinced that any sort of faith commitment is totally irrational and based on emotions or social pressure or something like that or wishful thinking. Um, and, you know, there, there are some people for whom that's the case. The, the, and, again, this is part of what convinced me to, to come back to the, the faith is seeing that for the great Christian thinkers, that's not the case. Not at all. That faith, their Christian faith is what enhanced their rationality. Um, wow. What allowed it to fully flourish, you know. I like that. That's, yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, I know studying, you know, this stuff, it's just my view of God, you know, it's just, it's just exploded, you know, it's, you were talking about the attributes and that one of the things we went over was Dr. Geisler's uh, systematic theology number two with the God and God and the attributes and simplicity yeah. and immutability. Man, I just uh, my my love for God just exploded. My my awe of God just exploded. It's just it's a shame. It's just a shame that. Uh, yeah, people just have no clue what they're missing. That's true, and and it takes um, it takes a lot of outreach, I think, to make that possible. Um, and you know, it's interesting too because you you never know what sort of uh, effects are going to come from talking with somebody about about this sort of stuff. It's very unpredictable, um, right. kind of humbling, actually. Um, you know, I've written blog entries, for example, about Anselm and had people write me and say, this is exactly what I needed at the time, you know, and, and uh, I had no idea that was going to, to occur. And, and, you know, if it wasn't for Anselm, I wouldn't be writing the blog entry. Uh, I'm not writing wow. it because I actually know an awful lot because this guy had some stuff together. Um, but, you know, Anselm talks about that. He, he, um, it's very interesting. In the De Concordia, one of his final works, He's talking about um, how grace works. And he's not trying to provide a completely, you know, systematic overview of that. But he talks about uh, a person, you know, the, the, the interaction between the human person and, and the influx of divine grace is a, a cooperative thing for Ansel. And then it bears fruit for other people. And you can look at the, if I help you, you can look at the action in two different ways. You can look at it as now you're placed in a context where grace is being offered to you from God through through my action, um, and then you have a connection with not just with me but with God through that primarily with God. 
you can also look at it as that's the locus where I actually get to choose to do what I'm supposed to be doing, which is to uh, to uh, interact with, with God the way I'm supposed to be. And the chain can keep on going and going and going and going so long as people make the right choices. Um, throughout the entire thing, grace is, is operating, according to Anselm. But it's always this whole network of human choices to cooperate with it as well. Very beautiful kind of image. I like that. Tell you what, Dr. Sadler, we got about three minutes left. Um, maybe you can kind of wrap us up and, and um, maybe give us a few resources. And, and what we'll do is we'll, we'll put Dr. Sadler's uh, – uh, any. I'll have him email me some – some of his websites and YouTube videos and uh, or links, and we'll we'll put them on the Theology Matters page, along with some of these uh, maybe some of the resources for those who are wanting to go a little little deeper in this. Okay, that sounds that sounds good. So I would actually um, bring up four main resources right off the bat. One that's been out there for a long time, available on the web, is uh, Jasper Hopkins' website. Uh, Jasper Hopkins is a uh, uh, sort of a grandfather of Anselm studies here in the United States, and he's, he's made a lot of important contributions. And one of the things that's really nice is that he has PDFs for free of his and Herbert Richardson's translations of a lot of Anselm's texts, including all of the treatises. So that's a very useful site. He also has some articles about what it was like to translate Anselm, which are quite fascinating. Um, There's also an institute for St. Anselm studies in uh, New Hampshire at St. Anselm's College. And let me put put a plug in, actually. They have a conference coming up next spring, which is on uh, St. Anselm. They they do these conferences every several years. But they also have the St. Anselm Journal, which uh, is available for free online. Again, PDFs, which you can download. They have links to other useful resources. Um, There are also some some decent articles out there on uh, online uh, encyclopedias, the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy and the the, uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And then um, if I had to recommend any translation uh, at present, I would say those of Thomas Williams are particularly good. I I like them because they they remain pretty close to the text. And the great thing, uh, besides being faithful translations about Thomas Williams' translations, are that they're cheap. Um, They're available from Hackett. Uh, which is uh, an Indianapolis-based publisher that has a, a mission of making philosophical works available uh, in inexpensive versions for, for students. So I, I would recommend, um, he's got a, a uh, uh, translation of the, the Monologian and Proslogian, if you're just interested in that. He's also got quite a few of the other works translated as well. And, and again, you can get those from, from Hackett Publishers. So those would be the main resources I'd I'd highlight. Wonderful. Any uh, any closing thoughts? Take a take a minute or so and and give us any closing thoughts that you have. Well, um, I'm always happy when people you know when an interest is sparked in Anselm. I would I would say that um, one of the things that's that's great about him is that he's not just 
working in, in say, apologetics and arguments for, for God, he, he has a little bit to say about everything. So if you if you enjoy reading the Proslogion, you probably enjoy um, reading other texts like On Truth or On the Fall of the Devil. You know, if you've ever wondered, you know, how, how did that happen? Um, you know, that, that's an interesting work to go to. Um, so I, 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 I'd suggest people, you know, read widely in this corpus. And again, you know, the texts are available for free online, so uh, they're very easy to get a, get a hold of. Well, Dr. Sadler, I just want to thank you. This is this has been one of the funnest shows I think we've ever done, and uh, oh, I think I've got you down got you down for August eighth to come back and do Thomas Aquinas. And uh, man, I'd like to like to keep having you back, and maybe we can just run through a list of a lot of these these great thinkers. So thank you again for coming on the show, and please thank your your uh, lovely wife for sparing you for for two hours. And I uh, really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, and we'll we'll definitely uh, look forward to seeing you again on August 8th. Sounds good. Uh, thanks again. God bless. All right, folks, that was Dr. Sadler. And uh, it's been a real blessing to have him on. I've really enjoyed his his uh, videos, and I uh, look forward to, to having him on again in the future. Just uh, as you guys can see, a real wealth of knowledge. So please uh, let people know, share the page. The podcast will be available for people to uh, to get and download. And uh, we'll see you again next week. God bless. Rap lyrics. Plato is dead.